Hello! Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Lunarverse Podcast. I'm Dr. Charles Liu, your host, but please, as always, call me Chuck. It is my pleasure, as always, to welcome our co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Hello! It's going pretty well. Anything exciting happened recently? I mean, there's been a lot of space news, but I think we're going to cover that in the episode. So Yes, I cannot wait. I would like to give a special welcome to our special guest today, Sarah Al-Ahmed, who is Planetary Society's voice on their podcast as well, amongst other cool things. Hi, Sarah. Great to see you. Hi, it's great to be on. I oh. honestly, like, it's really cool being invited to come and guest on someone's show. It's the first podcast outside of our own that I've been invited to join. So thank you. Oh, long time coming. Very happy to have you. Uh, you're going to be great. I can already tell. For those of you who aren't on uh, watching the video, for those of you who are just listening, Sarah has some really cool headphones, and we might talk about that a little bit later because there's some things about Sarah and her life uh, in the Planetary Society and out, which we can't wait to talk about. It's going to be so much fun. So as usual, we are going to start with today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. And what is that, you ask? It's this. Well, actually, it happened Christmas Eve of 2021, uh, the Mars InSight spacecraft heard, or rather sensed, some sort of Mars quake. Pretty significant one, actually. Like, oh, a Mars quake. That's cool. Well, it took months, but it has been figured out what that Mars quake was. It was actually a meteoroid, or a Marsoid, I guess, that actually struck the surface <laughs> of Mars. And a picture has now been taken of it, and it's been published, and we now know. It's just from the high-rise camera from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, MRO. Mm -hmm. And it is a cosmically cool thing. It actually literally is a hole in the ground of Mars and sprayed out around the edges of this are splotches of ice, like regular water ice. Basically, there was water underneath whether or not it was liquid water or already solidized, we don't know. But this meteorite punched through the surface of Mars, sprayed out all this water, and just created a little splitchy thing. And now <laughs> we know all about it, thanks to Mars InSight and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Now, Sarah, I know that the Planetary Society is deeply enmeshed in Mars science and all the kinds of cool things that someday we humans might do in terms of interacting with Mars. What's your take on the kinds of things we're learning about Mars, and especially in this case, you know, InSight and MRO doing this kind of study about Mars and things like Mars droids. <laughs> well, it's really exciting because, you know, InSight was designed to kind of tell us what was going on inside of Mars, you know, what, what the different layers within Mars are. And in order to really establish that, we're looking for Mars quakes, or we're looking for things like this, this meteorite that hit Mars. And anytime that happens, it kind of uh, almost rings the planet like a bell. And, and how that, that wave propagates through the planet tells us a lot about its internal structure, which can tell us a lot about its history and, and its formation. And this is all just part of a larger picture, which is that we're trying to learn about Mars's past and about its, its watery past and specifically. Because Mars, at one point, we think was a habitable world covered in water, um, which, you know, we can see evidenced in this layer of water that's, you know, probably frozen right underneath the surface. And other spacecraft have seen this as well. Some of the rovers will just roll over some dirt. And lo and behold, right under the surface, there's just 
frozen water just waiting to be tapped into, which is cool for the history of Mars, but also for future exploration. We could we could drink that water or use it for fuel or, you know, maybe use it to help us print Mars habitats. It's, it's really exciting. Wow. That's really amazing. I have to ask, uh, if you had the chance to ask us all to go to Mars or not go to Mars, like tomorrow, do you think we should? Tomorrow? No. Um, and for, for a few reasons, right? I mean, I think it's really important that we learned how to establish human habitats on a place like the moon first, get that down before we have to take that six months trip all the way out to Mars and put people there. We need to Fair. teach people how to, you know, survive, how to grow food, how to protect ourselves from radiation, all kinds of stuff. But more importantly to me uh, is really like, I'm curious. I'm curious about whether or not life existed on Mars in the past. And if we send humans to Mars now, that could, you know, limit our ability to really tell if what we find on Mars was there before or if it's something oh. we brought there on accident, right? Oh, um, contamination of sorts. Exactly, right? And, and if we do find life on Mars, and that crazy happenstance, right? We find life on Mars. Even if, you know, human life already got there and started depositing our, our earthly organics on the surface, we might be able to tell that they were different because of their, you know, genome sequencing and stuff like that. But personally, it's important to me. I want to know if life existed there in the past. And, and I want to do due diligence to that question before we put boots on the ground, you know? <laughs> That's a really nice way to think about it. As you know, NASA has an Office of Planetary Protection, mm -hmm. and it's not about protecting Earth but it's about protecting other planets from potential yeah. Earth contamination. Uh, There's so but, many places that life could exist. I mean, we went and landed, you know, Isis Huygens probe on the moon Titan around Saturn before we really even realized that, like, that could be a beautiful place for life to exist. Yeah. And it would be the worst thing ever if we went in there unknowingly and, and harmed the existing life. Because I just think of how precious that would be and, and how awful it would be to, to hurt it. I, ugh, I hate no. it. <laughs> <laughs> another another excellent point. Um, I, I don't know, Alan, I think uh, when you were writing the 30-second space travel book, uh, yeah. we were using words like not colonization when we we're talking about humans going out to planets, right? Because we don't want to be colonizers. We want to be, I don't know, immigrants or visitors or, or friendly neighbors. I don't know, Alan, did, did you come up with a way of saying something that you wanted to express yeah i don't remember exactly which words we used in the book but i know like the idea of that colonization when the process happened on earth led to some really bad consequences there and so i mean a lot of that has to do with the fact that there were other people in the places that were being colonized and that's not we don't expect to find people on the other planets in our solar system but we still expect to find environments and resources and such that we don't want to mess up by our presence right right None of this uh, unobtainium, the blue people avatar movie type thing, right? Blah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be just okay. <laughs> I know. Okay, so Alan, do we have a question from a student for Sarah? Yeah, so we have two questions today. Um, we're going to start with one. Uh, they're amusingly both by people named Anthony. So <laughs> the first, they're two different Anthonys. The first Anthony's question is the one we're going to ask right now, which is what date would you expect for Mars to be habitable? And I'm going to interpret that as that either what date in the past was it habitable, if it ever was, and what date in the future could it be habitable if we put an effort into it. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the the samples and all the science that we're doing uh, on Mars with the, the Curiosity and the Perseverance rover and many missions before have have taught us that that, you know, Mars used to be habitable few billion years ago, you know, maybe two, maybe three billion years ago. But something happened, you know, uh, the the atmosphere we blew off. Basically, the planet didn't have uh, a global magnetic, you know, shield to protect itself. And so all that air blew away and then all the water froze or sublimed, you know, it, it it's really sad to think about how much it's changed. But it's it's a lesson for us about how planets can change and how precious Earth is and how we want to protect it. So, it's cool to think about that. Um, but the Definitely. other side of the coin is, you know, will it be habitable again in the future? And there's two ways to really interpret that because it could be habitable on small scales for humans if we build habitats there. And how long yeah. will that be? I'm hopeful. And, and this is this is really kind of, um, you know, pie in the sky. But <laughs> I bet I bet we could do it in 100 years. I bet Ooh, we could okay. do it. Um, how optimistic. Well, I know it's optimistic, right? But you know, maybe it's just the 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 happiness in my heart after watching Artemis One, you know, launch. Uh, but yes, yeah, you know, we that we are cool. so close to to beginning habitats on the moon, really learning what that's all about, and then jumping from there to Mars. So, you know, that's cool. But could we make the whole planet habitable? Probably not. Yeah. Right. Okay. The the problems that existed in the past that that led to it it losing its atmosphere and its its liquid water those problems will remain no matter how hard we try. I mean, sure, you could nuke the whole planet to rubble and have it reform, but that would take Yuck. even longer. That would take billions of years for it to reform. That's not a good plan. Oof, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, we were just, and we were just talking about how we want to preserve and enjoy and appreciate Mars as it is today, not just yeah. you know bend it to whatever the humans at that time think is best for humans, right? We want to yep. really appreciate what it has to offer to us. So, so okay. I'm going to put mark my calendar 100 years from now. I'm going to call you, Sarah, and you're going to tell me, hey, did we get there or not? Okay. <laughs> I'll be on Mars living in my robot body. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be about fantastic. I love that. Okay. So, um, Sarah, you did do astronomical work for a number of years before moving on to the Planetary Society. Tell us about that a little bit. You know, after your formal education and being in the astronomical field, what was it like? What kinds of things did you do? It was it was a wonderful period in my life early on. I, I went and got my degree in astrophysics from UC Berkeley. And mm -hmm. immediately after that, I, I started doing research. Um, and even when I was in school, I, I took a lab course on exoplanet detection, which ah, was oh, important cool. to me because the thing that really sparked my love of space to begin with when I was a kid was I was six years old and I learned that there were planets going around other stars. I mean, you know, you go from your your whole universe being like this one little solar system with a few planets to suddenly an infinite number of worlds. So it was really exciting to do that work. And then right after I, I graduated, I was, uh, you know, I was a data taker. I was operating a telescope at Lick Observatory. Uh, it was the Nickel wow. One Meter Telescope, and I was ah. in a group working with Alex Filipenko and uh, mm. you know a few of my my other you know school friends essentially, and some some cool people I met. 
For those of you who don't know, uh, Mm -hmm. Alex Filipenko is one of the leading scientists involved with figuring out that there is dark energy in the universe in large amounts. He was involved a lot with the supernova studies and trying to understand the cosmology of the universe. So yes, he's a pretty big deal. If you get a chance to work with him, it's a lot of fun. And and I'm told he's a very nice guy. So A very nice guy and an incredible educator. I, I learned so much from him and he, you know, I was, I was really kind of questioning my path after, after college, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to find a job in, in astrophysics. And what do you do? Do you go on to grad school? Like, what do you do with that passion? And he was, he just, he took all of that love for space and funneled it into his students. And, and in a way that was so understandable, I think, I think I learned more from him in one semester than I learned almost in, in the entirety of college. So he, wow. he really inspired me and it was wonderful to work with him. And, you know, I, I guess in some small way, I was helping to contribute to that that research because I was basically taking pictures of shiny objects, you know, hey. active galactic <laughs> nuclei and gamma ray bursts and supernovae and, and shiny objects that they could then, you know, use that data to go on and feed into the, the research. So it was it was really cool. Um, but, you know, I learned after that that you know, as, as cool as it is to find planets and to take pictures of really awesome things in space and operate telescopes, the thing that that really filled my heart with joy was sharing what I learned with other people. So mm. after that, I, I took that that education in astrophysics and I went on to work at Griffith Observatory. And ah. that was just a wild ride. I was there for, for six years, originally just kind of teaching people about science on the floor and taking them to go see the telescopes and, and sharing that experience with people. And then teaching the, the school field trips for 10-year-olds was yeah, quite a awesome. thing for me. Like, <laughs> well, now- you know... Yeah, there, a lot of people uh, don't know, those of us, for, for those of you in the audience who don't know what Griffith Observatory is, it is this beautiful, amazing building way up in the hills over Los Angeles. You can see the Hollywood sign right from one of the balconies. And mm-hmm. it is just a wonderful place where you learn about astronomy. And they've got planetarium uh, theater in there. They have lots of interesting exhibits. And uh, they have these great scientist educators who come and tell you stuff like on a regular basis. Uh, and mm-hmm. I guess, Sarah, you're one of those wonderful people. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'll say that uh, everybody there, honestly, is just a wonderful human being who's so willing to dedicate their, their time and their love to share what they're passionate about with everyone. And, you know, we get people from all around the world up there and it's been open since 1935 for just decades. This place has been sharing space with people and they actually have the world's most look through telescope up there. So if, oh, cool. if anybody gets a chance to go up there and look through that, that Zeiss telescope up on the roof, it's, you know, it, it's beautiful to just, you know, say, look at Saturn through a telescope. It's a, it's an experience oh, every yeah. time you do it. But if you think about the legacy of every, every person who's ever stepped foot up, up those steps to look through that telescope and how many people you know, have, mm-hmm. have been able to just broaden their experience of the universe looking through that telescope. It's, it's wonderful, you know? <laughs> and, and I, you know, recently um, after the pandemic, they re they reopened and they have a whole new planetarium show. Uh, so if anybody gets a chance to go up there and look at, you know, watch that show, it's called signs of life and it's amazing. It's yeah. all about where we're looking for life in the universe. I think that's fantastic. Okay, you heard it from Sarah, everyone. Go see this thing. I, I'll 
betray my you know geekiness for a second and i'll tell you that the first time i saw griffith's observatory on television was actually in the original wonder woman television series starring linda carter and uh, i think alan's heard this story before they were like setting up this (laughs) they were setting up this uh like spy story where somebody was in this sophisticated uh, astrophysical research center and they would steal something and you had to run away and, and hide. And it was in the Griffiths Observatory. And I figured out, of course, watching it, I was laughing because I knew what it was You know, so many years later. Uh, it was some of the filters of one of the small telescopes, You know, just like a, an inch diameter kind of glass pieces of red and green and stuff. And he was like tucking his pocket. And then some security guard starts yelling, the crystals, the crystals. And they start running away and they go oh, hide no. in the storage room and then they hide. You know, but meanwhile, the, the security people completely miss them. So it was just hilarious for me to think that, oh, yes. In an <laughs> yeah, because those are like some of the cheapest pieces of the telescope in real life. Absolutely. And oh, it's so funny, me. like seeing all the, the different like movies and TV shows that Place has been in. Like I, I was trying to explain to to my partner, like after I'd gotten my job at Griffith Observatory, like I'm going to this place. And it was hard to contextualize, you know, trying to explain it to him. So the way I did it was I, I showed him that the two part um a two-part episode uh, from Star Trek Voyager that was oh, filmed there. And yes. so the, his first context for Griffith Observatory was seeing it <laughs> in Star Trek. And that was just so fitting. That's fun. It really is wonderful. Yeah. I, and you know what? It turned out that that episode of Wonder Woman finished, not at Griffith Observatory, but at a comic convention. It turned <laughs> out that that the criminals were trying to hide and sneak their way around by getting through in this convention. I don't know if it was technically San Diego Comic-Con, but it was like this big convention. And uh, it just like connected two parts of my life so well. You know, the part where I love doing the science and learning about things. And then the part with Wonder Woman. No, just kidding. Uh, The part (laughs) (laughs) and the part with Wonder Woman and Superman and Batman and uh, the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and just all the... Convention stuff, you know, it, it was so cool. I, now, I had mentioned earlier uh, to the folks who aren't watching the video right now, but listening to the audio, that your headphones indeed has a special thing, and it reminded me immediately of some of the folks uh, that go to the comic cons and wear costumes and things like that. So, can you describe to people? Uh, can you describe for the people who can't see exactly what you are wearing and how that like relates to your? Uh, enjoyment of things like, oh, I don't know, costumes, conventions, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay. So right now, I'm I'm wearing there the Razor Kitty Kraken two headphones. These are, are cat cat ear headphones, and you can't see it right now because I'm plugged into my work laptop. But when they're plugged into my gaming PC, they these little cat ears on top change all different colors, oh, which is super fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I, I actually, you know, it was before Razor started making these headphones. I helped Kickstarter the original cat ear headphone group. Um, <laughs> oh, fantastic. back in the day. It was a group of people coming out of UC Berkeley around the same time as me. So, you know, I was all about that. Uh, 
because I, I do. I, I love costuming. I love I love showing what I love through what I'm what I'm wearing. Yay. So, you know, every day, day to day, I'm kind of like wearing space outfits. Like right now I'm wearing uh, the Karina Nebula JWST dress. Um, wow, awesome. They've already <laughs> right? made clothing from that. That's fantastic. Yeah, they have. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> we're we're working really hard right now at the Planetary Society to put together a, a holiday gift guide that includes some stuff like this. But um <laughs> nice. Yeah, the, you know, part part of how I kind of like recharge my happiness batteries is by going to conventions and, and cosplaying either Yay! at, you know, uh, anime conventions like Fanime in, in San Jose <laughs> or going to, you know, San Diego Comic-Con um, oh, or, great. you know, Doctor Who conventions. Like I, uh, I end up picking one kind of in like, Las Vegas in, in Los Angeles. I mean, Gallifrey yeah, yeah. Angeles. Gallifrey one is I mean, we, we, you know, we lovingly call it Galley. It's like a family <laughs> there, honestly, because um, oh, you know, that show's great. been going on for so long. And mm-hmm. just the mm-hmm. the love that people put into these very specific outfits. Like I, I have this this dress that I made. It's, it's from a very specific episode where the TARDIS becomes a, a human for one episode. Her name is Idris. Oh. And, wow. and so, like, I have this this outfit, and it's it's just in one episode. But the people there love the show so much that everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, it's Idris!" And it just makes you feel <laughs> like you know, so so uh, happy to be recognized. <laughs> no, it's really wonderful, uh, as you know. Yeah, as you know, our show, you know, I specifically, but you know, the universe in in general has a deep and joyous connection with New York Comic Con. We've mm-hmm. been involved for years, and have really appreciated it. It's kind of uh, like you say, you know, a recharge of happiness batteries, you know, because right? being there in a kind of yeah. environment that's so loving. Alan, do we have another question? You, you said we had two questions from students, Bracera, right? Yeah. The other questions from the second Anthony, who is asking, <laughs> <laughs> who's asking, how does astronomy impact you as a person or the way you look at life? So much. Um, you know, I, I've I've talked to people before about just the scale of the universe and how that makes them feel. And for so many people, it makes them feel kind of you know insignificant in the scope of the infinite cosmos. But mm-hmm. but for me, the the more I learned about space, the more I learned about our place in space and how precious we are as living creatures, the more it made me feel just so special and and important. And, and like, if we could just be kind to each other and and dedicate ourselves to science. Just imagine what we could do. Just imagine what lies out there to be discovered. It, it fills me with, mm-hmm. with such joy, you know, um, it, it really, it makes me feel special and just uh, hopeful, really yeah, hopeful. That's great. And and that is a message that, that I like to think about too. Uh, we may seem small, but actually in the cosmos, we're big to other things. Uh, we may be short-lived compared to stars, but we're long-lived compared to other things. And right. We are as awesome and as ordinary as every star in the sky and every galaxy in the universe. And and if you've got that message too, Sarah, we are on the same wavelength. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's super cool. Thank you. So, I mean, it, it, it makes total sense that you went from being a scientist working on observations to going to Griffith Observatory and now the Planetary Society, which is a, mm-hmm. another uh, venerable institution that's been doing a lot of really interesting things about space exploration and humans going out into the solar system and thinking about ways that we can study and learn about and enjoy the universe. Tell us about some of the things that's going on there. Well, it's been a really, uh, I'm not going to say hectic, uh, exciting time at the Planetary Society <laughs> okay. because we've there are so many things we've been building up to and developing and finally, all of these projects are, are like coming to fruition. It's it's really cool to see. So 
you know, something I've been working on in the background ever since I got hired at the Planetary Society is building our new member community app. So we're, you know, we've been around since, you know, 1980s, but how, how do we give our members a way to connect with each other? It's been a real challenge because we have people all around the world who, who love space and want to talk with each other. And anytime we get them together is magic. So, uh, Early next year, early 2023, we're finally going to be releasing our digital community app. So people will be able to download that on their phone and just really get into the science with each other. So, oh. so that's one personal project I'm super excited about. Oh, but uh, we just recently launched our Planetary Academy, which is our membership Ooh. program for kids age years nine and younger. Wow. Uh, get them young, right? Because... The people who are going to Mars someday are basically nine and younger now, right? Absolutely. Right now, there are kids out there who don't know they love space, who are about to discover their passion for exploration, and they're going to be the ones that carry our missions on into the future. So we want to give them the opportunity to to get involved in science and, and to really learn about their place in space. So this is like awesome a really stuff. exciting thing for us. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but like, uh, <laughs> did, did you well, discover space as a kid and just like fall in love with it? Oh, it took me much longer, actually. I like Mm-hmm. so many things. I couldn't really at any time say that I liked space more than I liked physics, more than I liked biology, more than I liked music, more than I liked art, more than <laughs> I liked sports. I wasn't any good at most of those things, but it was just what I liked <laughs> to do. So mm-hmm. I think That's liking great. is more important than being good at it, at least in those young ages, right? And, and you definitely, you know, in the Planetary Academy, you definitely have to share with these kids the history of places like the Planetary Society. We have giants in the field that made such a difference in our understanding of space and our appreciation of space, not just as scientists or as, you know, wanderers, but actually as travelers. You know, the, the names are famous. Carl Sagan, for one, for example. Right. It's it's a wild thing to be part of the group that's like carrying on his legacy. I mean, he was, he yeah. was you know, our, one of our founders. And so many of us discovered our passion for space because of Carl Sagan. I was watching Cosmos as a kid before I even knew how to speak. You know, mm-hmm. wow. right, and and then Carl's friends and colleagues, you know, Lou Friedman, Bruce yeah. Murray, Bruce you know, Murray, some names who are not as well known but still very important. And, yeah, uh, and today else. it's it, and today you know our legacy is still being carried on by you know our CEO is Bill Nye the Science Guy. Sorry, I died. Bill, Bill, Bill. Yeah, now it's, a lot of people have been inspired by that too. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that was uh, my uh, my my childhood show there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing thing. Now, uh, speaking of things that just recently launched, uh, Artemis One just recently launched, right? Uh, doesn't the Planetary Society have something to do with our lunar explorations and things like that? Yeah, well, Artemis One launched a whole slew of uh, CubeSats, 10 of them. And among those CubeSats, one of them is called NIA Scout. That's the Near Earth Asteroid Scout which is going to be a solar sail that's actually going and exploring asteroids that are near Earth, helping to defend our planet, which is something we care a lot about a lot at the Planetary Society. But NIA Scout is something that we collaborated on as a team because we launched our light sail and light sail to solar sails. And we've that's been right. you know, consulting with NASA to help them with their mission. How did light sail, light sail to go? It was way more successful than than we really anticipated. You, you know, uh, sailing on on photons, solar sailing is something that was a dream of our founders. It was something Carl Sagan and and Lou Friedman and Bruce Murray were all very passionate about. So, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted to make solar sailing a reality, and 
that meant that we had to get people from all around the world to come together to help us crowdfund the first fully crowdfunded mission in history. 50,000 wow. people supported this mission, and it ultimately culminated in our Light Sail 2 mission, which was solar sailing around the Earth. Uh, we only expected it to last for about one year, but it lasted over three years before it burnt up in the atmosphere. Oh, that's perfect. Now, how, how do your solar sails work? Yeah, so... We're basically just trying to prove that solar sailing is a viable means of propulsion for a small satellite like a, like a CubeSat. So we didn't need to have uh, you know all the bells and whistles so it could really control its flight very well. It's basically just one giant like reflective sail, and it it uses the momentum of light coming from our sun to propel itself. So when the photons from the sun come in and then they bounce off of that reflective sail, it gives our, our spacecraft just a little bit of a push. It, it imparts some of that momentum from the light onto our sail, which allows us to, you know, push it just a little bit and, and keep its altitude raised. And then there are, are some, some kind of, you, you know, uh, reaction wheels and stuff on board that yeah. will then, you know, turn it so that uh, we're not, you know, say when when the, the sail is between the sun and the earth, we don't want it being, you know, blown back toward the planet uh, by yeah. having its full sail one direction. So we, we have to turn it as it goes around the sun. So it only gets that push when it's, you know, in a favorable direction, essentially. Wow. Um, That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Controlling the light sail must be like a video game. You're like making sure everything is turning just right, moving back and forth and everything like that. Uh, before we go, I have to ask you the ultimate question for gamers. Console or PC? Um, <laughs> these days, mostly PC. Um, mm. And that's because, you know, I... I've played through so many games since I was a, ch a child. I've, I really want to kind of master all genres of gaming. And so it was around the time that I was getting into, you know, like real-time strategy games, you know, StarCraft yeah. and things like that. I started gaming more on my PC. And then I started trying to learn more about first-person shooters and, and get into that world. And I, I just, you know, despite playing with controllers since I was a kid, I'm just not twitchy enough. I'm just not accurate <laughs> enough in uh, yeah, PvP fair. games. So uh, these days... Mostly my PC. Fair enough. Okay. So I think we, I, I wish we could go on for hours and hours and hours, Sarah. Will you come back again sometime? Oh, absolutely. This has been so fun. And I feel like, I feel like we're friends already. I know we just met each other, but I bet we could talk about conventions and gaming for hours on end. So absolutely. Oh, yeah. It'd be yeah. a great thing. And, and let's not leave out astronomy and space travel because absolutely. those are things that are also such important and wonderful things in our lives. I'm very, very excited about that. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Sarah. Um, where can we find you online or social media or something? Find out what you're doing, what the Planetary Society is doing, all that kind of thing? Yeah. So I'm about to become the new host of Planetary Radio. So it'll be easy to find, you know, all of my shows will be online at planetary.org slash radio if you want to get okay. them through our website. It'll also be up on, you know, Spotify and all the other places you look for podcasts podcasts. Um, but you can also find all of our stuff on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, just look for the Planetary Society. And if you want the Planetary Radio specific place, you want to go to Twitter and go for at PlanRad, and I will be posting there. Nice. nice. At PlanRad. Thank you so much. Alan, I want to thank you as always. What a wonderful episode and, and just a great co-host you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> Sarah, thank you again. And you will be back. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. And thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to talk to you.
And everybody in the audience, thank you for being part with us today. If you like what you see and hear, please support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Lunarverse.